Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, the United States Supreme Court appears to take up arms in the culture wars. Republicans approve of Vladimir Putin more than any American Democrat, and a state senator apologizes for insulting the Oregon governor. But we begin on the international front as Russia has launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Reaction from the global community has been swift, but so far no country has sent in troops to repel Putin's army. But as Alex Horton reports for the Washington Post, not everything is going as planned for Russia. He spoke with Taylor Van Sice. How much of the Russian force has been deployed to Ukraine? You know, I, I think we're seeing still right now that the majority of the, the forces that are gathered on the border, which is about 200,000, the majority are not in Ukraine. You know, it, it looked like what they've done is they've started, you know, their offensive with uh, artillery strikes, rocket strikes, and, uh, and sorties uh, with, with jets and bombers. And there have been grand incursions all over the place, but, you know, not in these very dramatic, you know, battalion on battalion uh, moves into the into the country. So, you know, their sort of do- classic doctrine is to to bombard and then go in. Um, so we might see that uh, a little bit later. But as of now, you know, a lot of the forces that are, are at the border have not actually gone in yet. And from what we're seeing on social media, official channels, even, you know, security cameras at border crossings. How long does it appear this operation was likely planned? Has anybody hazarded a guess on that? I mean, something like this, you know, it's it's difficult to put your finger on it, right? Because, you know, a, a, a person like Putin um, probably has been thinking about this for a while. The war that they've backed with, with their separatists in the East has gone on since 2014. So I don't think there was ever a time that Russia didn't have this on their mind or plan for it. I mean, it is really the job to plan for every contingency. I mean, I'm sure, I'm certain that, that the U.S. has a contingency to invade Canada if they needed to. I mean, it, it sounds super unlikely, but there's probably a, a plan in some drawer. Um, so any contingency is, is thought of, and especially when it comes to Ukraine. Um, but when it comes to the exercises, right, that was the smokescreen all along. Um, you know, they, these are sort of planned routinely. You know, they've happened in Belarus before. Um, but I mean, if I would have to venture a guess, I mean, getting all the logistics and, and the movement and the training, it probably took, you know, a matter of weeks, if not months to, to get everything in a row there. The 2008 invasion of Georgia, folks look back to that and see a lot of strategic, maybe embarrassment for Russia. Are we seeing a more precise execution of Russian objectives in Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the experts I talked to, you know, who's a former Pentagon official said in Georgia, you know, the, the different components like the air campaign, the, the ground forces, they didn't have a ton of coordination um, and they weren't doing well when it comes to complementing each other. You know, it's called combined arms when your your Air Force works together with your Navy, which works together with your Army. Um, you want those pieces to, to work with each other well. That's not something that really they did all that competently in Georgia. And I think they learned from that. Um, and they, they've certainly practiced at it a great deal, you know, in the last 13 years to the point to where it looked like they did they did pull off something uh, much more sophisticated this time. They, you know, they used amphibious landings. They had a multi-pronged approach. Uh, they, they used cyber attacks before um, going in. There are things that they did that shows a, a degree of competency that they didn't have, you know, with Georgia. I will say, though, there are some things that they've done that had a lot of military analysts kind of scratching their head, one of which is the air assault at the cargo airport that's near Kiev. It has a lot of runways for, for bigger planes. They need that for an assault on the capital because they need to land in reinforcements and have a, an air bridge to, to constantly bring in 
troops for those who are wounded and killed. They did it during the day, and they did it by helicopter before the air defenses were knocked out in Ukraine. That did not go well for them. Ukraine took back the airport, and you know it's still a point of struggle right now. Doing it during the day and not having air superiority at the time was looks like a mistake. As far as armament is concerned, you know, aside from nuclear, chemical, biological options, is Russia holding back? Have they deployed their big guns yet? They are. They are holding back because you know, like I said, like these things need to complement each other. So when you have more foot soldiers going in and and trying to take over territory and capture positions. That's when the the rockets and their artillery will really begin in earnest. They're not using everything they have. They have a lot, and they are using a lot, but they haven't gone full tilt yet. It seems like they envision something that's you know a little bit longer than just a couple of days in Kiev and out, right? Like, you know, they're they're in it for the long haul, and you know they're not going to fire everything they need because they need to to set the battlefield and they need to to knock out the air defenses before they, they really begin in earnest. Finally, as far as, you know, you go down the stat sheet, obviously air and sea, Russia is superior. There's no there's no second guessing on that. But on the ground, from from a soldier-to-soldier perspective, are, are the American and European arms making a difference and helping the, the Ukrainians hold their own? You know, the, the Ukrainian military said that 80 uh, tanks were destroyed um, up until now. And, you know, that's that's a lot. You know, I don't know. Uh, we're still waiting on better verification and other governments to put a number on it. That, that's a lot. That's a lot of tanks. Um, you know, they, they did report that some javelins were used to destroy some tanks, and there was photos from the Ukrainian military that were posted that had burning tanks. But, of course, the javelin is a very kind of symbolic weapon that got a lot of play and airtime because it was it was a political message. So I think also at the same time that Ukraine may be using them, they're also incentivized to say they are using them. Uh, because they want more support and they want more weapons from from NATO and from the U.S. In particular, you know these weapons. You know we um, we have a saying in the business that you know initial reports are always almost always wrong, and you know that's that's certainly the case in this type of environment. That's Alex Horton of the Washington Post talking with Taylor Van Sice. Meanwhile, the U.S. and NATO seem to be working on the diplomatic front and using their international influence to choke Moscow through economic sanctions. Here's Elisa Jaffe. The Biden administration announced it will move to freeze the assets of President Vladimir Putin and Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov following the European Union and Britain in directly sanctioning top Russian leadership. Retired four-star general and military analyst Barry McCaffrey joining us on the Northwest Newsline. Are these financial punishments by the U.S. and allies going to be impactful or are they more symbolic? Well, I think they're impactful in the longer run. I think they have enormous political importance by trying to label correctly Putin, Lazarov, and the oligarchs as essentially international outlaws. So they are a good thing to do. They will encourage those within Ukraine and furthermore help bring together a a sense of accountability of who's causing this massive tragedy to unwind. But in the short run, they will not affect the fighting in the Ukraine, which will be decided in the coming few weeks or days. NATO activated response force for the first time in history. What does this mean? Well, I think it's a a powerful statement. The European Union, NATO, the 30 nations have immensely more economic, military power, diplomatic options than does Putin and Mother Russia. If we didn't respond, if there doesn't seem to be a sense of uh, unity of, of energy in the NATO alliance, 
within five years, Putin will be looking at the Baltics, Romania, Poland, and uh, Kaliningrad. And so we simply had to do something. Thankfully, that has now happened. The Biden Secretary of State Blinken, Secretary Austin team has done a good job of pulling together the levers of international power. The fight in Ukraine is continuously creeping closer to the capital of Kiev. Ukraine's ambassador to the U.S. commended the spirit of the Ukrainian military and the citizens who stayed behind to fight. They have displayed enormous courage, and that includes the political leadership, President Zelensky and his senior officers. Some of them have been interviewed, very valiant, sober-minded men and women in, in public life. And never mind the Ukrainian military has called up their reserves, they're calling in militias, they appear to be fighting fairly effectively, this will be a costly operation for the Russians. However, we shouldn't kid ourselves. The situation is grim. The purpose of the Russian armed forces now is not to seize Kiev, which they will do eventually, but instead to destroy the Ukrainian armed forces. Kiev itself, three million people, a military option is fight block to block against Russian armor. That will devastate the city and cause catastrophic civilian losses. I don't see how the Ukrainian military with almost zero air power and air defense and with their country being invaded from three separate axes, I can't see how they can sustain this in the longer run. Did Putin's warning of consequences deter some countries from helping because of fear of confrontation with Russia? Well, a Putin warning, uh, which essentially implied he'd use nuclear weapons for anyone who opposed his uh, subjugation to Ukraine, was really unsettling. I think he may be uh, scared now a bit deranged. This is his fifth invasion. The Hitler analogy is not a bad one. The last four he got away with, he's way out uh, over his skis on this one. So I don't know, you know, where this will necessarily go, but I, I do think that the NATO stance has been crucial. We cannot allow him to have one soldier cross the frontier of a NATO country. As an example, we put a one parachute infantry battalion from the 173rd Airborne into the Baltic states. That's not a big fighting force, but it tells Putin, if you invade the Baltic states on day one, you'll be fighting U.S. soldiers. And that should give him enormous uh, pause for thought. Retired four-star General Barry McCaffrey of Seattle. Thank you, sir. Good to be with you. Here at home, an urgent plea for help is coming from the leaders of faith in the Ukrainian community in our state, desperate to help as the situation in Ukraine grows even more dire. Carlene Johnson with that part of the story. Pastor Paul Demyonik of the Ukrainian Baptist Church in Vancouver is terrified for those he loves still in Ukraine and those he is tied to in faith with Christian churches taking in refugees. It's uh, uh, our country, our people are in the really hard time. It is war came to each house, each family, and uh, uh, I have a straight connection with our people in Ukraine. They need help, especially in the West region. Our churches uh, helping for the refugee. Uh, they are feeding people and they ask uh, us for support. Demyonik tells me Christians in particular are in danger and local Ukrainians are asking believers to stand with them. Anyone who want to come and uh, 
bring any help, we are we are open because after that uh, we collect some money and send them. I talked to some pastor from Ukraine today, and uh, they are doing. And I told them, use your funds, use your money, and we will cover soon as we will collect. Our church here in Vancouver, we are working, and our first Ukrainian Baptist church in federal way, I talked to mm-hmm. pastors, and they are open, and they are thankful for your support, for your prayer, and uh, let's work together to save lives. He understands Americans are preoccupied with their own worries and understands that, but Demyonik says he hopes people will stop down and pray for his people. They are killing innocent people today, this moment, this time. I called to Ukraine a couple of times right now, and my relatives, my brother, they showed me and they said, look at what is going on right now. They are killing innocent people, people who doesn't have any weapons. And I don't know how that happened in the 21st century and all countries just only waiting and checking what, what happened. Well, we, we are hoping just only God should help us because we don't have any hope for, for people or for other stuff. But, but from other side, we are trying to do anything, everything, what can we do? It's time. It's time to work. It's time to uh, to help. And just I am asking, stay together with us. Number one, pray. Number two, do what you can. Really small things can change, can help, can feed some people. Carlene Johnson, Northwest News Radio. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back... Would you believe Republicans would prefer Vladimir Putin over the current American president? Well, you have to believe it because it's true. We'll get you the details when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Well, as Putin continues his offensive into Ukraine, we're seeing some new information about how Americans view him, in particular Republicans. And it appears that Republicans would prefer Putin over any leading Democrat. Now, writing about this in the Washington Post is national correspondent Philip Bump. He joins us now on the Northwest Newsline. And uh, where are we seeing this? Uh, So YouGov did a poll that was conducted in January uh, for The Economist. Uh, so this is it's important to note this is before uh, we reach the current stage of aggression uh, by Russia in Ukraine. Uh, but essentially, the poll asked a battery of political figures, including Putin, including a number of American politicians. Uh, and from that, we see this remarkable result uh, that Republicans are more likely to say they view Putin favorably, that is either very or somewhat favorably, than they are President Biden, Vice President Harris, Speaker Pelosi, uh, the Democratic Party, just sort of down the line. And also importantly, they're far less likely to say they view Putin very unfavorably than they say that of Biden, Harris, etc. And this seems to be kind of par for the course, because if, if there's one thing Trump did during his four years as president, it was shift Americans' views on Russia and on China. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true largely. I think it's important to note that there had been, particularly back in 2014, when Putin first annexed Crimea, uh, that there was this surge of, wow, look how strong Putin is compared to weak Obama. 
uh, among Republicans on the right. I also think it's really important to note we're still talking about a, a, a small fraction of the Republican Party. It's not as though 70 percent of the Republican Party views uh, Putin favorably. It's just that the small fraction happens to be larger uh, than the fraction that, that views Biden favorably. Uh, but you're absolutely right that, that, that Donald Trump, there were a lot of ways in which his presidency sort of reinforced this competition between Russia and the American establishment, and he would repeatedly side with Russia. Uh, and, uh, you know, the way in which he sort of operated within the party was to demand loyalty. And one of the ways people were able to show loyalty was by echoing that preference for Russia over some American institutions. And one person in particular who has echoed that is Tucker Carlson. This is what he had to say this week. Take a listen. It'd be worth asking yourself, since it is getting pretty serious, what is this really about? Why do I hate Putin so much? Has Putin ever called me a racist? Has he threatened to get me fired for disagreeing with him? Has he shipped every middle-class job in my town to Russia? Did he manufacture a worldwide pandemic that wrecked my business and kept me indoors for two years? Is he teaching my children to embrace racial discrimination? Is he making fentanyl? Is he trying to snuff out Christianity? Does he eat dogs? These are fair questions, and the answer to all of them is no. Vladimir Putin didn't do any of that. Fox News host really echoing a lot of what President Trump said during his time, fact-checking notwithstanding. I mean, a lot of Republicans follow Fox News, and, and, and this is really doubling down on that. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it, Carlson has for some time been sort of an apologist for Putin's view, view of what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, he has repeatedly suggested that uh, that Putin is being unfairly maligned uh, in the American media. Part of this is just his you know, knee-jerk contrarianism, which is sort of what pays his bills. Uh, but you're right that, that Republicans broadly, there's been this this, this outpouring of, that's, that's probably a little strong. <laughs> there have been a, not, a lot of prominent Republicans who have expressed sympathetic views toward uh, Putin in the wake of this invasion into Ukraine, including Trump, who was on a radio show last week uh, in which he praised Putin's decision-making here as genius and savvy uh, and you know, contrasted that with the perceived weakness of President Biden. So there's, there's very much this sense not of uh, American having one consistent foreign policy as, a, as, it, as it applies to our enemies, but instead uh, that, that foreign policy is another way in which partisanship can be displayed. Uh, and that means saying that Joe Biden is doing the wrong thing, which uh, can often then bound over uh, the line into Vladimir Putin is therefore doing the right thing. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. That old adage seems to be true here. But how much can this really damage American foreign policy with all this consternation at home? It's a, it's a fair question. I, I think that we're very early here. It's not really clear how this resolves. It's not clear the extent to which the United States gets involved, and it's not clear how far uh, Russia is going to, to push things in Ukraine. All of those things will obviously determine the aftermath for American foreign policy. Uh, if there is a broader escalation of conflict in Ukraine, uh, that will probably do things like drive up energy prices. Uh, it could contribute to economic difficulty in the United States, which obviously will then have political repercussions. Uh, I think it's safe to say that there were not going to be a lot of Republicans who are going to be generous in assessing how Biden responded to this just by the nature of partisan politics. Uh, but I think it's really hard to say here so early uh, what the long-term repercussions might be on foreign policy generally, uh, much less on American politics. Well, you mentioned the American politics. We're in an election year. How does this look to damage or, or perhaps even benefit one side or the other? It's, it's really hard to say. I mean, I think that most of what's going to drive the midterm elections this year are the fundamental issues, how well the economy is doing, 
you know, the introduction of COVID here, while how people are viewed in terms of hand, having handled the pandemic, uh, the fact that a new president will often see a backlash uh, as his supporters tend to stay home and the opposition supporters tend to go to the polls. There are a lot of ways in which things are already shaping up poorly for Democrats. Uh, whether this affects that dynamic significantly, it's it's just it's it's very hard to tell at this juncture. And why do you think Americans are so opposed to any military in, intervention in Ukraine? I mean, obviously, they're not a member of NATO, and, and, and the foreign policy aspect is a, is a little bit different. But it, it just seems odd that from the very beginning, the line in the sand was drawn. We're not sending any troops over there. And I think it's fundamentally a backlash to Afghanistan, right? I mean, we, we there was this, the attacks of 9-11 led to this very uh, fervent level of support for military intervention. We swept into Afghanistan. Uh, that was then parlayed into a war in Iraq by George W. Bush, which was not popular. Uh, and then that got bogged down, and Afghanistan got bogged down, and it's only been less than a year since we have not had any active forces in Afghanistan. Uh, and I think it's sort of understandable that there's this fatigue. And, and frankly, this is something that Donald Trump ran on. That he ran on this idea that there, there, sh- there were too many interventionist activities. You know, whether that means he wouldn't have intervened in Ukraine. Uh, I think it's. I don't necessarily think that's a fair assumption to make. Uh, but I think Americans are just tired. They're tired of being engaged in foreign conflicts where they don't necessarily see any real benefit. And their default assumption is not that America will move in quickly, be helpful, and then leave, uh, but rather the opposite. All right, Philip Bunt with The Washington Post. Thank you so much for joining us. Of course, thanks. When we come back, charging headfirst into the culture wars, the right-leaning Supreme Court takes on some of the most controversial issues when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. The now conservative supermajority on the Supreme Court seems to be taking up some more controversial cases, particularly some that involve the culture wars. The latest has to do with religious freedom and when that collides with anti-discrimination laws. Joining me now is Robert Barnes of the Washington Post. He covers the United States Supreme Court, and we've seen a number of these cases over the last several years, but the court is yet to rule on the fundamentals within these cases, but that could change very soon. That's right. Uh, the court has taken a case from Colorado, involves a web designer. Uh, she wants to uh, design websites for couples who are engaged, but uh, she says that as a Christian, she believes uh, that marriage is between a man and a woman. She would only want to do those sites for uh, heterosexual couples, and she would like to put a notice on her uh, website uh, saying that. And uh, that is in conflict with Colorado's anti-discrimination law and lower courts have ruled against her, Uh, now the Supreme Court will look into it in a case that they'll hear next fall. And we've seen many cases like this before. We had the Colorado Baker. We had the case here in Washington State with the uh, florist Arlene's Flowers in in Richland, Washington. But in none of these cases, this issue of religious freedom or anti-discrimination has yet to be decided, correct? Yeah, the court hasn't gotten to that fundamental question. For instance, in the Colorado cake baker who didn't want to make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple, uh, they said that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission that ruled against him 
uh, his name was Jack Phillips, uh, they said that there was some anti-religion bias among the members and that that made that um, decision wrong. But they didn't get to this real fundamental uh, question about when someone's religious beliefs have to give way to an anti-discrimination law uh, or vice versa. Have we seen any writings from any of the justices on issues similar to this? Do we know how they might rule? Well, we know that um, there are some who think uh, the liberals on the court in the last case, you know, indicated that if a business is open for business to the public, it must serve all of those uh, who want its services. And we have seen that some of the conservative justices have been anxious to take a case like this, and they've been very protective of religious rights. One thing that's interesting about this case, the woman in the case, Lori Smith, said that she wanted the court to look at both her religious rights and her free speech rights. And the court only accepted the part of her case about her free speech rights. And so she says that it violates her free speech rights for the government to tell her, one, that what she has to express in one of these website designs that she comes up with, her artistic uh, product, she says, and also that she can't tell gay couples that she can't uh, do this kind of work for them. That seems like an an interesting argument, and we saw some of this in, in when I was covering the Arlene's Flowers case a couple of years ago, this idea of artistic expression that I think no one could argue uh, is not a form of free speech, but can the state, I guess the fundamental question here would be, can the state force a company, force a person into certain speech? Is is that what the justices are looking at? And that's that's what her, the questions that her case uh, raise. And, uh, you know, it's interesting where there have been suits about this from calligraphers who, you know, uh, write uh, what that people will hire to write their wedding invitations, uh, videographers, uh, photographers who don't want to participate uh, in a same-sex wedding. And so um, on the one hand, they say, you know, this is our creative product. You can't tell us how to create that product. On the other hand, the state argues that no one would mistake, for instance, this web designers, if she created a website for a couple, no one would think that she was the one inviting them to partake of the, uh, you know, to join in and celebrating the couple's wedding, that everyone would know that that's the message of the couple that hires her, not Uh, her own message. And so it raises, as you say, a lot of interesting questions. But then there's also the issue of person versus business. Uh, These people, whether it's Arlene's Flowers or the cake decorator or the website designer, they're businesses that are licensed by the state. And do businesses have the same rights, freedom, speech as, as individuals? Is that something that's also being argued? Well, that's part of it. Yes, you're right. And also, you know, that there is a long history in this country now of public accommodation laws, which say that if a company offers its services, it must offer its services to everyone. You know, uh, think back to the 60s when the case cases involved uh, whether uh, black people could uh, 
sit at the same restaurant counters or uh, or hotels could not rent rooms uh, to African-American families. Um, and uh, so there is a, a long history of that. And in Colorado and the state of Washington and about 20 other states, uh, those laws specifically protect people uh, because of their sexual orientation. And so it's not just this sort of general uh, interest that's out there, but these states, such as Colorado, have specifically uh, said that you can't discriminate against uh, same-sex couples. I hear from the other side often when we're moderating debates on this, well, what about that old adage that, you know, you can put up a sign in your business, we reserve the right to refuse service to anyone. That's not codified in any law, is it? No, not really. Uh, and uh, and I don't think that they would be able to do that. They can certainly uh, make some sort of rules over who can't um, uh, over what a person can do in their business, but they can't uh, exclude a person from their business because of their color or, in these case, cases of states that have it, sexual orientation. So how much of this goes to protected class as well? A lot of it is about that. And, you know, one argument that is always out there is that this couple could go somewhere else and get the same kind of services. So it's, why don't they just go to a, a company that would be happy to have their business? But, you know, the law doesn't work that way. And the law doesn't say that uh, someone has to sort of shop around for a business that will provide the services they want, but that if a company is open for business, it has to be open for business to all. Finally, when do you think we might see a ruling on this? Well, it's going to be a while. Um, the court uh, has uh, accepted the case, but uh, accepted it for argument next term, which means the term that starts in October. And so um, there probably wouldn't be a ruling uh, on this until sometime in the year 2023. All right, Robert Barnes, reporter for The Washington Post. You can follow him online on Twitter, at SCOTUS Reporter, or read his work at WashingtonPost.com. Thank you so much for your time and insight. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Still to come, a new person who may have to rule on this issue has been nominated to the bench. Her background when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Well, the pick is in, if we're to use an NFL reference, and that pick, Kentanji Brown-Jackson, is the nominee that President Biden has selected to fill the vacancy coming up on the United States Supreme Court. So who is this jurist? Joining us now is ABC News legal analyst Royal Oaks, and uh, I'll put that very specific question to you. Who is Kentanji Brown-Jackson? Well, she has a stellar record. Uh, she worked for several prestigious law firms. She clerked for a U.S. Supreme Court justice, Stephen Breyer, the justice she uh, hopes to replace. And for oh, seven or eight years, she served on the trial court in Washington, D.C. at the federal level. And then just last year, she was nominated to and confirmed to be a judge of the District of Columbia Circuit Court of Appeals. And as a result, she has a, a lengthy track record as a judge and a lawyer. She doesn't have an extensive track record in terms 
terms of a paper trail. Perhaps that's a reason she was an attractive candidate. And of course, uh, the senators may try to explore uh, her opinions during the upcoming confirmation hearings to shed light on things that, that really aren't revealed by a lengthy paper trail. That lack of a paper trail, so not a lot of opinions written by Kentonji Brown-Jackson. So what do we know of her? What do we know of her jurisprudence, her views on the law? Sure. Well, she did have a couple of high-profile decisions on the bench. She wrote a 118-page decision slamming President Trump, saying presidents are not kings. She ordered White House counsel Don McGahn to comply with a legislative subpoena. Uh, she also had ruled several of President Trump's orders had violated employee rights. Uh, one of the, her decisions was actually reversed unanimously by the D.C. Circuit, uh, after she issued the ruling as a trial court judge. But again, uh, she does have a, a track record that really is too short to have a significant paper trail. Interestingly, she sentenced a man to four years in prison after he fired a rifle inside a District of Columbia pizzeria. He believed in the Pizzagate uh, conspiracy theory that Hillary Clinton was operating a pedophile ring out of the uh, of the pizzeria. So that, that decision, of course, uh, caught a lot of attention. So is that last Lack of a paper trail is what's so appealing because senators that may be opposed to her can't really glom onto anything? Certainly that's a factor. Um, but in addition to that, it may be that President Biden isn't too worried about what's going to happen in the Senate because she's actually already been supported three times in her career by the U.S. Senate when she was appointed to the Sentencing Commission years ago, then the Federal Trial Court, and then last year, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Now, it was kind of close. It was, uh, I think, 50 53 to 44, the Senate vote in favor of her last year to go up to the Court of Appeals. Uh, three Republicans did vote for her. And as a result, uh, the White House has been reaching out to some Senate Republicans to try to get them on board. But as a matter of fact, if zero Republicans vote for her, she could still win her job because the Democrats have uh, uh, 50 votes. And of course, the vice president would break the tie and support the nomination. Have we heard any reaction? action from Republicans in the Senate or, for that matter, Democrats? Well, we know that the Senators Collins, Graham, and Murkowski on the Republican side voted for her last year, and we've heard some positive comments uh, from some of their offices. Uh, there, are, of course, predictably are very high uh, praise words coming out of the Democrat side in the U.S. Senate. Uh, and in fact, it would be very surprising if Republican opponents of her nomination were able to come up with anything in her track record that really would swing votes and threaten her nomination. The last few nominees to the high court, we've seen just absolutely bitter fights in the Senate. Are we expecting the same thing here? It probably won't uh, result in such a bitter fight. One thing that is a factor here is that when President Biden uh, made that campaign promise, he was actually on the debate stage in South Carolina uh, before the primary in 2020 when he won, when he announced that if elected as president, he would appoint a black woman to the Supreme Court bench. So uh, to to oppose her nomination uh, would expose Republicans to some political uh, downside. And of course, Democrats like to point out that Ronald Reagan, when he was running for president in 1980, said he would appoint a woman to the Supreme Court. It's, 
it's time for that, he said. And of course, he made good on his promise with Sandra Day O'Connor. If a Republican opposed her nomination now, uh, the Democrats would say, well, gee, that's interesting. You're fine with the promise of a woman by one of your guys, Reagan. But if it's a black woman, you're not so good with that. That could expose them to some political liability. But all of this, her nomination and her confirmation, if she gets it, isn't expected to really change the makeup of the court. It certainly would not change the makeup because right now it's basically a six to three conservative to liberal split. Or if you consider the Chief Justice John Roberts as perhaps a centrist or part of the liberal bloc in some key issues, then you could call it five to four conservatives. So for uh, the new justice to replace a liberal, uh, Justice Breyer, it wouldn't make a difference in any particular votes, very likely. On the other hand, she's 51 years old. That makes her the second youngest justice. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett just turned 50. And as a result, instead of Breyer having maybe three, four, five more years on the court, uh, this new justice will have probably three decades on the court. All right, Royal Oaks, ABC News legal analyst, thank you so much for your time and insight. You bet. Still to come, an apology from a state senator to Oregon's governor when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Finally this week, Democratic State Senator Marco Leos is apologizing to Oregon's governor. I participated in a radio interview where I made unkind and disrespectful and inappropriate comments about the governor of Oregon, and I deeply regret those comments. This is from a floor speech he gave on Friday morning. As chair of the Transportation Committee, I have an obligation to represent all of us well, uh, and I failed in that task. Now, the interview in question was with John Carlson of our sister station, KVI. Senator Leas was arguing for a tax on out-of-state sales of fuel that's refined here in Washington, something Oregon Governor Kate Brown opposes. This governor uh, down in Oregon is living in fantasy land. She's in the last few months of her term. She's losing relevance. She's a lame duck. On the John Carlson show, Senator Leas went on to say... Obviously, she's grasping for something to stay in the headlines as her you know of her successors being selected and as we've reported leas has since apologized he says he should have known better and that will do it for this episode of the northwest politicast if you like the show please leave a rating and a review in apple podcasts and for more be sure to check out our other shows such as northwest news this week life beat with marina rockinger and much more all are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app i'm jeff pogela thank you for listening and have a good week